So page 1514, Matthew 10. Jesus called his 12 disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out impure spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. These are the names of the 12 apostles. First Simon, who is called Peter, and his brother Andrew, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans. Go rather to the lost sheep of Israel. As you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. Do not get any gold or silver or copper to take with you in your belts. No bag for the journey or extra shirt or sandals or a staff, for the worker is worth his keep. Whatever town or village you enter, search there for some worthy person and stay at their home until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it is not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. Truly I tell you, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on the day of judgment than for that town. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to the local councils and be flogged in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. But when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. You will be hated by everyone because of me, but the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. When you are persecuted in one place, flee to another. Truly I tell you, you will not finish going through the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. The student is not above the teacher, nor a servant above his, above his master. It is enough for students to be like their teachers and servants to be like their masters. If the head of the house has been called Beelzebub, how much more the members of his household? So do not be afraid of them, for there is nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the roofs. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? 
yet not one of them will fall to the ground outside your father's care. And even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. So don't be afraid, you are worth more than many sparrows. Whoever acknowledges me before others, I will also acknowledge before my Father in heaven. But whoever disowns me before others, I will disown before my Father in heaven. Do not suppose that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. Anyone who welcomes you welcomes me. And anyone who welcomes me welcomes the one who sent me. Whoever welcomes a prophet as a prophet will become a prophet's reward. And whoever welcomes a righteous person as a righteous person will receive a righteous person's reward. And if anyone gives even a cup of cold water to one of these little ones who is my disciple, truly I tell you, that person will certainly not lose their reward. And why don't we pray? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. What a confronting word it is. And we pray that you might draw near to us and by your Holy Spirit take this word and bury it like seed in good soil. Bury it deep in our minds and our hearts so that there it might grow up to a harvest of righteousness and salvation, we pray. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was 17, I first came under conviction of the gospel. Uh, I was living in Port Macquarie, which is where I'd largely grown up, and it was at what they used to call a canvas crusade down on the riverbank at the very end of Horton Street. And every year they'd erect a, the churches would erect a big tent and they would bring up from Sydney a fiery Baptist preacher by the name of John Farr. And uh, John Farr used to preach, he would preach the gospel, he would do it with such passion that it felt like he was dangling you over the fires of hell. And that's what it was for me. Uh, I remember going along as a 17-year-old, and I remember as he preached, feeling that indeed hell was real, and judgment would come, and I needed to make a decision for Jesus. And then he invited us all to come forward, anyone who wanted to make that commitment to him, to the Lord Jesus. And uh, I felt the, the, the conviction of the Holy Spirit, there's no doubt about it. Uh, everything in me urged me to go forward, except I didn't. And I didn't because I was afraid. I didn't because I didn't want to be standing up in front of so many people. I didn't because I didn't want to be identified in that way with being a Christian. I didn't want to be identified as a 17-year-old and I didn't want to be embarrassed. And so I refused. It was a few months later in a very different context that uh, God finally nailed me and I did get converted. And by the time 12 months later the next Canvas Crusade came round, I'd been an active believer for several months in my local church, in the local fellowship group. 
And the first night that I went to the crusade, John Farr was there again. He preached again. He dangled me over the fires of hell. He invited everybody to come forward and I knew the conviction of the Holy Spirit that I needed to be coming forward and still I hesitated. I didn't want people looking at me. I didn't want people thinking that I'd just become a Christian because I'd been a Christian for several months now. And I thought that would make me look like I was a new Christian and I wasn't. I didn't want to be that public in professing my faith in the Lord Jesus. And so I wrestled and I squirmed and I danced around and I tried to avoid and finally I got up from my seat and I walked down. I can still visualise it all these years later. Walked down the grass, down the corridor and I stood out the front. It wasn't for me a matter of conversion. It was a matter of surrender. How far would I go for the sake of the Lord Jesus Christ? That's a question that I hope you've asked yourself and I want you to ask yourself tonight. How far would I go for the sake of serving the Lord Jesus Christ? There was a hymn that was very popular. It was sort of a song uh, around the time I was converted by a man called Judson Van Deventer. And it, so some of the words, it's a funny sort of, some of the words are a bit funny I think, but, but some of the good words say, All to Jesus I surrender, all to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him in his daily presence live. I surrender all, I surrender all, all to thee my blessed saviour, I surrender all. We don't talk that much about surrender, do we? It's just not a word that Christians use that much in my observation. We use the language of lordship, but we don't use the language of surrender. Nothing wrong with that, of course. Lordship's a perfectly good word, but it's, it's language that I think is easier to wriggle out from under. I can affirm the lordship of Jesus without actually sitting under the lordship of Jesus, but I cannot surrender to the Lordship of Jesus unless I have truly surrendered all. And our passage that um, Pauline read for us tonight is all about surrender to the confronting demands of being a disciple of the Lord Jesus. And in Matthew 10, Jesus is proceeding to put into action something of what the disciples have already seen in Matthew 9. You'll see how Matthew 9 ends... In verse 36, Jesus sees the crowd. He has compassion on them because they're harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. And then he says to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. And that's exactly what we see happening in Matthew 10. Twelve disciples. Matthew names them in verses 2 to 4. even lists himself amongst them as Matthew the tax collector and he gives them instructions Jesus gives them instructions you see them in verse 5 down to verse 8 do not go among the Gentiles or enter any town of the Samaritans so stick with the people of Israel go rather to the lost sheep of Israel as you go preach this message the kingdom of heaven is near heal the sick, raise the dead cleanse those who have leprosy and drive out demons freely you have received freely give one level you might imagine that for the disciples it must have just been one whole exciting adventure. 
I mean, verse 1, notice what they're told. He called his 12 disciples to him and he gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to cure every kind of disease. And I mean, can you imagine what that would be like? Jesus came to you and he says, name the disease, you're going to heal it. Just a word. You can cure it. Out you go. Cure whatever diseases and sickness. Any demons? Cast them out. I mean, how good would that have been? But he then goes on to warn his disciples about the significant costs of following him. And in fact, he deals with three significant threats to our discipleship. Fears is really another way of putting them. Fears they must face and overcome to be a true disciple of the Lord Jesus. In verses 9 and 10, it's the fear of poverty. Do not take along any gold or silver or copper in your belts. Take no bag for the journey or extra tunic or sandals or a staff for the worker is worthy of his keep. You'll be provided for, so take nothing. No money, no change of clothes, no bag, no staff. Go, in other words, as beggars. Leave yourselves exposed to all of the discomforts and the risks of poverty because, he says, the worker is worthy of his keep. You'll need to rely on the charity of others. You'll need to rely on the generosity of those you meet. In other words, you'll need to trust God for your provision. At SMBC, our um, bridge team have just come back from a three-week mission trip to Cambodia. And I have to say that before they left Sydney to fly to Cambodia, nobody checked their baggage to see what they were taking. I saw some of the suitcases. They were taking a lot. If they wanted to pack a pair spare pair of shoes, that was fine. We had no problem with that. If they wanted even to take a second T-shirt with them, we said, that's okay, by all means, take a second T-shirt, have a bit of variety if that's what you want. But all of that's forbidden to the disciples here in Matthew 10. You're going to follow me, you're going to be faithful, I'm going to send you out, we'll take nothing. Expose yourselves utterly to the provision of God. Because that lies at the very heart of discipleship, doesn't it? And our great fear that God might not respond as we want him to respond is what hinders our discipleship. When the cost of a lifetime of serving Christ begins to impact us in our career path, decisions that we make about how we invest in church ministry and our family and it begins to cost us in terms of bonuses and promotions and the way the bosses view us at work. When the demands of generosity to those who are in need, to those who are gospel workers here and overseas, when, when, when those demands of generosity make us feel financially vulnerable because of our generosity perhaps even means that we are going to sacrifice some of our most cherished dreams in order to be generous. And when that impact is not only on us, but if we have family, it may be on our children. When we can't give to our children what we would like to give them or when they start comparing themselves with their friends and they say, why is it that we can't have what others have? 
decisions we make in surrendering to the Lord Jesus and the impact that it can have. And we begin then to feel the weight of what Jesus is wanting the disciples to understand. But then he goes on to say that even when his disciples rely on the support, on the generosity, on the care and provision of others, that those very people that they look to for support may well reject them, may well give them nothing. And so he introduces in verses 11 to 15 a second fear, the fear of rejection. Whatever town or village you enter, search for some worthy person there. Stay at his house until you leave. As you enter the home, give it your greeting. If the home is deserving, let your peace rest on it. If it's not, let your peace return to you. If anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, shake the dust off your feet when you leave that home or town. I tell you the truth, it will be more bearable for Sodom and Gomorrah on that day of judgment than for that town. It sounds noble, doesn't it, when you read it like that? But we all know how painful rejection can be. I mean, who doesn't want to be loved? Who doesn't want to be liked? Who would put up their hand and voluntarily say, reject me? No, no, over here, 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 reject me. Jesus says, if you're a disciple of mine, you'll need to get used to that. Because it could happen. Not everyone will like you and your message. In fact, those who are closest of all to you, you know, may well know what it's like. Those dearest to your heart, even they might reject you. Notice what he says down in verse 21. Brother will betray brother to death. And a father, his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. All men will hate you because of me. Down in verse 34. Do not suppose I've come to bring peace to the earth. I didn't come to bring peace, but a sword, for I've come to turn a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Understand the cost of discipleship, Jesus says to them. If you have the fear of rejection, well, understand that it is a cost of following Jesus. I'm sure that some of you have had or have parents who are deeply unhappy about your surrender to the Lord Jesus Christ. Friends who have perhaps been offended by things that you have said, which have been simply a statement of the gospel about sin and their need for a saviour. The father of someone that I know very well was so embarrassed by his son, my friend, from the day he first gave, gave up work and went to study at a theological college. My friend's father refused to ever speak about it, never asked his son anything connected with his studies, and when he left to go into ministry, about his ministry. Never. A man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And speaking of enemies, well, Jesus says, let's move on to persecution now. Verses 17 and following. Be on your guard against men. They will hand you over to the local councils, flog you in their synagogues. On my account, you'll be brought before governors and kings as witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. When they arrest you, don't worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you'll be given what to say, for it will be the spirit of your father speaking through you. Fear of poverty. Fear of rejection, well, Jesus says there's also the fear of persecution. 
persecution of Christians in China, I was reading recently, is the worst it's been for more than a decade. It's estimated that at least 50 million people in China will experience some form of repression as the government is starting to tighten its control over religious worship. The crackdown on religion in China is part of a pattern of increasing persecution of Christians, which is really right across Asia. One in three Christians across all of Asia experience high levels of persecution. Well over 200 million Christians all around the world are being persecuted. It's not a new event. It's not an unusual event, is it? The early church was born out of persecution. Jesus himself, of course, was persecuted. The early church and the disciples were persecuted. The early Christians and the early church immediately after the New Testament period. Roman historian Suetonius speaks about the persecutions of Christians under the Emperor Nero. He says believers were arrested and crucified. Some were covered with animal skins and torn apart by wild dogs. They were even doused in oil and set alight so that Nero could have light for his garden parties. Terrible persecution. Just as Jesus warned his disciples. Notice verse 24. A student is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. So three fears. Like a venom, those fears can take hold of us. They can poison our faith, they can rob us of our zeal and they can steal away our joy. Jesus' antidote to the venom of fear is surrender. Will you surrender control of your life to Jesus? Your future happiness into the hands of another, God. It's no theoretical inquiry, it's not just a nice hymn, I surrender all for us to sing. It's real though, isn't it? It's real for each and every one of us. Every day we're making decisions about that. Will I surrender this day to the Lord Jesus? Will I live live under his lordship today? Will I bear the cost of possible rejection, the cost of financial needs? Will I even bear the possibility of persecution? Will you yield your life into the care of the one who promises you persecution, poverty and suffering? Notice verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. There are three little images in those verses about the kind of surrender that Jesus demands of us. The first is a family image, verse 37. Anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. My mum passed away just over six years ago and uh, my heart still feels the weight of sadness for her loss. There's a love that I feel for Pauline and for my children and for my grandchildren that is so deep and is so powerful that at times it's almost painful. I don't think that's unusual. It's not rare, it's not uncommon. I think it's shared by each of us in this room. Family are, for many of us, our closest bond. And so Jesus picks family in verse 37 
And he says, that's the kind of surrender that I want. I want you to love me more than them. The second image he uses is a violent one in verse 38. Anyone who doesn't take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Take up your cross, follow me. Surrender to Jesus such that you will sacrifice your life for the sake of following him. The early church recognised the importance of this. They gave special place to those who were martyred for their faith. But they understood that it was a brutal, costly image that they were being called to follow. Have you surrendered to Jesus like that? Such that you will walk up the hill of Golgotha in his footsteps. Die to yourself so as to live for him. I know that the chances, the likelihood of any of us dying for our faith is highly unlikely. But do we die to our careers and our dreams and our hopes and our aspirations? Do we so shape our lives that those lives will be determined by what the Lord Jesus wants for us, what will glorify and exalt the Lord Jesus best? All to Jesus I surrender. Humbly at his feet I bow. Take me, Jesus. Take me now. The final image is one of life, but it's an image that turns the normal upside down. You might expect that looking for and finding life, whoever finds his life, verse 39, will lose it. Whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You might expect that looking for and finding life is a good thing. Daily we're encouraged to do that. We have this modern day obsession, don't we, with living life to the max. People are haunted by the fear of missing out on anything that life has to offer. For others, there's this restless pursuit of lifestyle, so they suck all they can from their world. But Jesus says, no. You've lived that way, it's the way of death, not the way of life. It's fool's gold. Whoever finds his life will lose it. You go scrabbling after everything that will be best for you, you'll lose your life in the end, he says. Whoever loses his life for my sake, though, will find it. At the heart of Christian discipleship lies surrender of our life to Jesus. So why would we do it? Well, firstly, because Jesus is our judge. Notice verse 26. Do not be afraid of them, those who would persecute you. There's nothing concealed that will not be disclosed or hidden that will not be made known. What I tell you in the dark, speak in the daylight. What is whispered in your ear, proclaim from the housetops. Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. I'm sure you've all know the scene from Crocodile Dundee where... You know, the tough as nails Mick Dundee is in New York City and uh, he comments on the fact that there are 7 million people living there so they must be really friendly because they all love to live together. And while he's walking with his girlfriend, they're held up by a knife-wielding thug and uh, his girlfriend turns to Mick and says, just give him your wallet, he's got a knife. And Mick just looks at the bloke and he looks at the knife and he says, nah. He says, that's not a knife, and he pulls out this whopping great bowie knife from his belt. 
He says, this is a knife. Now the script could have been lifted straight from Matthew 10. In fact, I wonder whether they didn't steal it from there. People have the power to imprison you. People have the power to kill you. Nah, that's nothing to be afraid of. But God, well, it's a different matter. The one who has power not only over your body but over your soul as well. The one who holds in his hands your eternal destiny, who will judge you on the final day. Now there's someone Jesus says to be afraid of. When Martin Luther, the great German reformer in the 16th century, he stood before the Holy Roman Emperor, one of the most powerful men in all of Europe, indeed all of the world at that time. It was April 1521, it was in the German city of Worms and it was at the great parliament of the Holy Roman Empire. And there was Martin Luther, this simple German monk, facing all the might and power of one of the most powerful empires in history and they were demanding that Martin Luther should deny the truth that he had written. It was a terrifying occasion for Luther. He was scared witless. It was no light thing for him to set his teaching against all of the teaching of the Roman Catholic Church of the day, all of the teaching of the Pope of the day, all of the teaching of the leading theologians of the day, all of the convictions of the Emperor of the day. I think most of us would like Luther to have been bold and resolute, and yet in fact he was not. For a start he had a heavy cold, and we all know how that can affect men, having a heavy cold, and he was struggling with depression, So when he appeared before the emperor, he asked for 24 hours to think about it. They laughed at him. Frightened? Yes, Luther was scared. Willing to back down? No. 24 hours later, he comes back to before the emperor. And he says to them, if you can find anything in my writings that are contradicted by scripture, I'll, I'll deny them. But he says, if you can't, then to go against scripture, he says, that is a fearsome thing. My conscience is bound by the word of God. I cannot and I will not retract anything since it is neither safe nor right to go against conscience. That is the word of God. Here I stand. May God help me. Amen. Know who you ought to be afraid of. Luther understood that. It took 24 hours to write himself, but he got it. Deny God? No, I could never do that. Fear of what we might miss out on, fear of what it might cost, fear of what others might think, fear of you fill in the gaps. Jesus warns us none of those things are half so frightening as to be found in the hands of an angry God. To stand before our creator and judge, having failed to yield to him as king, failed to submit our lives to his rule, failed to trust him with our hopes and our dreams. Do not be afraid of them, but rather fear God. Secondly, Jesus tells us to surrender our life to Jesus because he saves notice verse 29 are not two sparrows sold for a penny yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from the will of your father even the very hairs of your head are all numbered so do not be afraid you are worth much more than many sparrows 
whoever acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge him before my Father. But whoever disowns me before men, I will disown him before my Father in heaven. Our entire life is watched over by God. The very hairs of your head are numbered. Even a sparrow, or perhaps we might say an Indian miner, is seen and known by God. Jesus says, how much more are you? You are the one for whom he died. You are the one to whom God extends his grace with such lavish extravagance that there is nothing in your hand you bring but simply to the cross of Jesus that you cling. How loved you are. How strong is your saviour. It's Jesus in verse 32 who will be standing on the day of judgment with you. Jesus who will be your high priest. Jesus who will acknowledge you before his father in heaven and say, that one's mine. Jesus whose blood will cover your sin and Jesus whose righteousness will clothe you. The fear of poverty, the fear even of rejection of family, the fear of persecution of those who first hated Jesus, nothing can be compared with surrendering your life to him. To the one who will judge the living and the dead, who numbers the hairs on your head, and who will stand with you on the day of judgment and say, he or she is mine. My blood was shed for them. My life was given. Enter now into my kingdom. This life of surrender, that's what we've been called to. But notice well that it's a life that Jesus lived before us. It's not a life that Jesus says, this is what you've got to do. It's a life that Jesus himself lived Verse 37, anyone who loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus embraced the agonizing rejection of his eternal father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Verse 38, and anyone who does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. It was Jesus who first walked with his cross to the hill of Golgotha nailed to the cross, sin-bearer of the world. Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. It was Jesus who was obedient to death on a cross, but it is God who raised him to life and exalted him to the highest place. This life of surrender to which we are called, it is only the life that Jesus has first lived before us. Will you surrender all to Jesus? Not hold back, not impose conditions, but release your life into the arms of the one who not only judges you, but also has saved you, died for you, loved you, and redeemed you. All to Jesus I surrender. All to him I freely give. I will ever love and trust him. In his presence daily live. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the Lord Jesus and we thank you for his life of service. We thank you for the grace that he showed us 
in that while we were still sinners, he died in our place. And we thank you for this costly call to take up our cross and to follow you, him. We thank you for the promises you give that the very hairs of our head are numbered, that we are never far from and always are safe in your loving care, that come what may in this life, we have one who has conquered death and who will bring us to be with himself in heaven. Father, make us your disciples, we pray. Enable us to make decisions which will best reflect what it means to be a disciple of the Lord Jesus in our world. And we pray these things for his most holy name's sake. Amen.